I would love for us to thank the band for leading us in worship this morning. That takes more time than you know and more talent than I have. And I am grateful for each of them. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, if you've been with us for a while or you, uh, you have realized that we have taken the book of Mark, we've divided it into four big chunks that we work through in uh, various numbers of weeks. And we are in Mark chapter 6 this week and in a very unique story that's going to cause us to think about what it means for us to really follow Jesus. To be people who align our lives with the message and it's of Jesus, this Messiah who we have trusted, whose name is Jesus. As you go through Mark's gospel, you'll notice numerous times that there will be a part of the passage that starts at one place, goes to a different place, and then comes back to the very first place. It's called a Mark sandwich. And... I am in week two of a six-week weight loss challenge, and I have missed sandwiches, and I missed this one last week. When we get to Mark chapter 6, what we notice is that there is a sandwich that starts with where we were last week, where we happened to be last week, where you see Jesus speaking to his followers. He sends them out. And when he sends them out, we then go to a completely different story that is, in some ways, a little unique because it's the only story in the whole Gospel of Mark that does not directly talk about Jesus. And then you come back to the story of Mark and how the disciples were coming back to Jesus. So again, you've got this sandwich. We don't want to miss it. Jesus sends the disciples out. Jesus takes us to the story of John the Baptist. The story of John the Baptist is right there as to what takes place with him and King Herod. And then we come back to the disciples returning to Jesus. All of this telling us about what it means to really follow after Jesus. Because following Jesus is what it means to be a Christian. If you are not following Jesus, then it's really hard to call yourself a Christian. Because as we read through the New Testament, there's this active idea of what it means for me to engage in the message of Jesus, for me to align with the message of Jesus, for my life to reflect the truth of who Jesus is. And as you look at this text, John, Jesus sends these guys out. When he sends them out, we go to a completely different place. So go with me, Mark chapter 6. I'm going to pick up in verse 7. And we're going to just zone in on verses 14 through 29. But Mark chapter 6, picking up in verse 7, He summoned the twelve and He began to send them out in pairs. And He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except the staff. No bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and, he, and to put on an extra shirt. And not to put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. Again, just such a unique turn of words there. Just stay there until you go. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out. They preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons. They anointed many sick people with oil and, and they healed them. Verse 14, King Herod heard about it. Because Jesus' name had become well known. And some said, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. 
But, but others, they said, well, he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from a long, long time ago. When Herod heard of it, he said to him, John, the one I beheaded, has come back. He's been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That makes sense. So Herodias held a grudge against him and he wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod feared John and protected him. He was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed. Yeah, he liked to listen to him. An opportunity, an opportune time came on his birthday. When Herod had given a banquet for his nobles, military leaders, and the leading men of Galilee, when Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out. She said to her mother, What should I ask for? And John the Baptist said, she said, At once, she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and he beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. And then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and they removed the corpse and placed it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had gone and taught. All they had done and taught. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we make the mistake of treating these people as if they're characters. They are characters because of vegetables from our childhood... They are characters because of felt boards where we taught felt Bible stories with felt Jewish people that all look like Hemsworth brothers. We tell stories and we make Bible people characters and we miss the reality of what's actually taking place. Something barbaric happens in the middle of this story to someone who is following after Jesus. Simultaneously following after Jesus and preparing the way on the Baptist. He's a prophet. He speaks as one who is saying, this is the word of the Lord. He calls people to turn from their sin and to turn to Yahweh to look for the Messiah who is coming. Again, you see the disciples sent in 7 through 12, our focus passage where John is beheaded in 14 through 29, and then the disciples return. This story is one of scandal. And if you know anything, 
about the world in which we live, there is nothing more popular than scandal. The only type of scandal that's more popular than scandal is scandal among royalty. So here in this story, you notice that that is very much present. You have wealth, you have scandal, you have power. All three intertwined together in this woven web to show us this tale of two kingdoms, these competing kingdoms. This war that we're going to see raged. These are all elements of Herod's kingdom. Wealth, scandal, and power. Now you more than likely have heard of Herod. If you've never been to church except at Christmas, you have heard of Herod. He's a very popular figure in the Bible. There is Herod the Great. But this is a completely different Herod. This is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is not quite that Herod. He is Herod the not so great. He's unique in comparison to the Herod that we are so familiar with. He's related to him. He's his son. But the story is strange because when you are a Herod at this point in history, you view yourself as the king of the Jews. And Herod would have definitely viewed himself as the king of the Jews. He had power over the Jewish people. He is a sheriff of sorts, though. He gives direction and... Uh, instruction to the people but in reality he is not really a king he's a king that is not a king he's a king only when the right people are there if the real kings are there he doesn't reign and he doesn't rule maybe you grew up and you watched the movie Toy Story any Toy Story fans in the room there's a character named Woody on Toy Story and he's always in charge he's the bossiest he's the oldest child Woody is the one who gives direction to every other character in the home of Andy until a child walks in. And when Andy walks in, Woody falls to the ground as if he is dead. That gives us a picture as to the reign of King Herod. He would reign and he would rule over the Jewish people until Rome got involved. And when Rome got involved, he was nothing more than a puppet king, a play king. A fake king, but he really liked to think that he was the real king. As we look into the text, we see this idea of what it means for Herod to be that. So you look in the scripture and you see Jesus sending out the twelve. You've also got John the Baptist in the story. You've heard of John the Baptist, more than likely. When we get to verse 14, King Herod hears about this Jesus because Jesus' name had become well known. And some said, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And others that miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah or he's a prophet. Those three names would have been really resonated in the world in which they live because it's a pretty small place altogether. John the Baptist was well known because people went to John to be baptized. People thought John was a prophet like the prophets of old. Maybe if you have ever if you grew up in church and you're a tad bit older, you were in a place where you would say to someone, "Hey, that person preaches like my preacher when I was a kid." And for whatever that means, maybe you're that pastor, someone you just look up to because he was warm and wonderful. Maybe he snarled and sweat and spit. I don't know. But for John. He calls people to think about the Old Testament prophets. They would consider John the Baptist and they would say, that's what that was like. He's speaking on behalf of God. Some say that this Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected because everyone knows the story of Herod. Everyone knows the story of Herod and his weird relationship with his wife and his strange relationship with the daughter and the party that he threw where he would behead John the Baptist. God's raised him up. 
Some say that he's Elijah. Well, when Elijah comes, the Jewish people believed, we have, we have arrived at the end of the beginning. God is bringing a culmination to all things when Elijah gets here again. Because Elijah never dies in the Old Testament. Or he's a prophet. This is just someone who's speaking on behalf of God. But Herod hears about this Jesus. And he has a flashback. Because of who John the Baptist actually is. And when he hears about Jesus, and he hears about the things that Jesus is saying, and the things that Jesus is doing, and what he's calling for from people, he thinks that John is resurrected. He hears the tales of who John is. And he diagnoses it so that it affects him in the worst way. Because what could be worse than your person that you have put to death coming back to life if I ever I go to WebMD which I do more often than anyone should ever go to WebMD if you would like a better diagnosis than WebMD throw your phone in the street and call a child in elementary school and just say what's wrong with me and let them tell you but when I read options on WebMD, I, I gravitate to, toward the one that's going to impact me the worst. If my elbow is hurting, I never think it is, oh, you did something that caused your elbow to hurt yesterday, I think my arm's about to fall off. That's what I think. For Herod, the idea of John the Baptist being resurrected impacts him more than anything. Which outcome of these is the worst for me? The ghost story. Now you may say, but my understanding of the Jewish people would tell me that they don't necessarily believe in ghosts. And I would reply, more than likely. But honestly, what part of King Herod's story so far tells you that he's a really good, obedient, Bible-understanding Jew? Which of these outcomes is the worst? Well, who is this John the Baptist? He's a model for us. Well, how's he a model for me? How's he a model for you? Because I don't eat locusts, and I don't necessarily eat locusts with honey, though I think honey's okay. He's a model for us in different ways. He's hard on himself, but he's not hard on others. Do you know the things that John the Baptist would frustrate people by doing? He would go to soldiers, and he would say to them... Don't intimidate people. Don't extort people. Be content with what you're paid. He would say to the tax collectors, Don't take more than the appointed rate. Which was completely a push against what it meant to be a money-making tax collector in the days of the Bible. For the rest of the people who listen, the commoners like us, he would say to you this, this audacity of a speech. If you have two tunics, give one to somebody who doesn't have one. And just make sure that nobody goes hungry. This is John the Baptist who infuriated and frustrated people. Because he's telling them to turn to Yahweh. And to turn to Yahweh means that you turn from yourself. You make Yahweh and the things that Yahweh cares about more important than you. 
For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in a prison. But he didn't just, verse 17, he doesn't just chain him in prison because he wants him to be in prison. He chains him in prison on account of Herodias. Now, this may sound confusing to you that Herod is married to a woman named Herodias. And if that doesn't confuse you, please, please do my taxes. Because this is a very hard thing. Who would name people this? But Herodias is his brother Philip's wife. Because he'd married her. Now remember, we throw back Herod is the son of Herod the Great. People who aligned with Herod believe that he might be the Messiah. And if he's not the Messiah, he will definitely get us there. So let's just go with the flow of King Herod. Here is Herod's flow. Here is his family tree, which looks like poison ivy. He has a wife. He divorces her. This causes a real war. When he marries Herodias, his ex-wife's family, King Art. Eratus of Nabatea, which I have not pronounced correctly, nor do I pronounce anything correctly, starts a war with Herod and eventually defeats him. On top of that, Herod, Herodias was Herod's sister-in-law because his brother, Philip, was married to her. That's how sister-in-laws work. The Old Testament does not allow that. On top of that, Herodias divorces Philip, which is also not allowed for a woman to divorce a man at this point in the Bible. So you have a person who is claiming that he may possibly be the Messiah or who can definitely get you to the Messiah who is doing unmessianic things. Would the Messiah marry his brother's wife or have a man murdered? He's keeping John in prison. One read says he's keeping him in a safe space on account of Herodias. His wife has a plot to kill Herod, or rather to kill John the Baptist. She more than likely was going to kill Herod too, because that's how the lady sounds. His wife has a plot, and Herod arrests John to keep him safe. He's keeping him in a safe space. Because Herodias, she's done with John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist has been preaching a sermon. And that sermon is very much like the other sermons we've just walked through. It's not lawful for you to marry your brother's wife. In front of everybody. You shouldn't be doing that. So Herodias in verse 19 has a grudge against John. She wants him dead. But she couldn't. Because Herod feared John and he protected him. Knowing he was a righteous and holy man. Something about John and this unique message that he keeps proclaiming causes Herod to keep coming back What about the uniqueness of the message of Christianity do we communicate that causes people to want to come back even when they don't want any part of it? When Herod heard him, he would be perplexed. Yet he liked to listen to him. He keeps listening. And keeps listening. But 21... An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles. 
his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So Herodias, she's ordered the balloons. There's a kosher cake. Big festival. Wine. He orders the most important he invites the most important people, the elite of the elite, the social elite, the military elite, the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' own daughter came in and, and she danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So they're drinking wine, they're eating cake. He calls for his let me help you. He calls for his stepdaughter, who is also his niece, to come dance for him. I want to be completely transparent. Nothing, anything that I've, nothing that I've read in regard to the actual breakdown of this text says that this dance is creepy. But nothing about this family tree says that it's not. So then she comes in to dance. And, and when she dances, the king says to the girl, just, hey, whatever you want. I'll give it to you. Just a, a boastful, braggadocious man in front of people that he views as his friends who are probably not his friends, but he wants them to think that they're friends and he wants them to think that he's important. I'll give you whatever you want. Whatever you ask of me, and I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. So in his head, he's thinking she wants a new car, maybe a pony. He makes a rash, drunken promise. This girl has no clue as to what to ask for. So she goes to ask her mother, what, is, what should I ask him for? The story almost reminds us of what we see in the Old Testament when you've got King Ahaz and you've got Jezebel and there's this prophet named Elijah and she hates Elijah and the king would listen to Elijah from time to time but she hated Elijah she hates the idea that anyone would ever say to her you're sin, it's sin the mother looks at the girl and says John the Baptist's head 25, at once she hurried to the king and said to him, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. I want his head. And I want it now. The strangest thing about greed and anger and revenge. It's antithetical to patience. I want his head, I want it right now. I'm not waiting, I want his head right here. On a platter. I mean, after all, we're at a party. Why not put it on, on something nice? Make this part of the festival. Verse 26, you can even see Herod wrestling, Herod Antipas. He's deeply distressed because 
of his oath and his guests, he didn't want to refuse. So he's distressed. He's, he's got this tension. I really like John, and I've kept him safe from my crazy wife. I've kept him in the prison, in the best place, so she can't get to him. But man, I've got this party, and all of these people are watching me have this party. And they've heard my boastful, braggadocious ways. And he sobers up really quick. I've got to do something to save face. I can't refuse her and what she's asking of me. And you'll notice in the, the text, this word immediately runs here from this. We get, I want his head right now. So right then, he just rashly, okay, somebody go kill him. Barbaric. He commanded him to bring the king's head. So he went and he beheaded him in prison. He brought his head on the platter and he gave it to the girl. He kills a person that fascinates him and that calls him to do something other than what he's doing to save face. He eliminates a person who is pushing against the grain of what he wants to be and what he wants to do to save face. Jesus says, the greatest man ever born of a woman. That's what he says about John the Baptist. And that man dies as entertainment for a birthday party. Let me ask this. Me and you. We're all here together. What elements of aligning with Jesus do we eliminate to save face? What are you pushing out? Because if you were to not push that out, you would not save face. Maybe it's the idea of comfort. Maybe it's the idea of being able to keep going on. If I just push this out of my thoughts, if I push this out of my my considerations, if I, if I don't pray about it, I can, I can save, I can just keep going. Herod is an immoral, wavering, pathetic king. And to let John the Baptist live means that his kingdom would be less. To waver here is again reminding us of what we see in 1 Kings when Elijah addresses the people who can't make their mind up between the prophets of Baal and him, between Yahweh and Ahaz. He says, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? How long are you going to limp back and forth between these two ideas? Herod here makes his mind up. Sadly, at least he does. I don't think many of us do. We just keep wavering and wavering. We don't have the power to eliminate something altogether that would bother us. But we overlook the idea that for the kingdom of Christ to come, our kingdoms have to crumble. They've got to go. They've got to be shattered and smashed and pushed to the side. Because there can't be more than one king. 
Think about this story with me, though, because honestly, we just said it's an indirect. It doesn't even mention Jesus when you get to this whole Herod birthday party flashback. But it alludes to Jesus. The story of Herod and John the Baptist. You have a lesser ruler who has a lesser prophet and a rumored resurrection. In the story of Jesus, you have a greater ruler who kills a greater prophet and king, which gives way to resurrection, actual resurrection. In both cases, these men who would kill the prophets give in to outside pressure, and they kill someone who is innocent. Jesus, who is pure. John the Baptist, who is innocent before He's done nothing that should cause him... He has done nothing unlawful to be in this jail. Nothing unlawful to be in the hands of Herodias. The apostles, they gathered around Jesus and they reported to Him all they had done and all all they they had done and all they had done. So so I love... You get to the story of 29. That's just the story. Herod's flashback. And then the disciples come back. They've been out preaching, teaching, and saying things about Jesus that were very much in line with what John did. So the idea of them bringing on an earthly kingdom, it gets dashed quickly when they hear that John's gone. If anyone was aligned with Jesus, with John, it was Jesus. And he dies for it. These prophets see miraculous things take place. These disciples see miraculous things take place when they go out. But when they get back, they hear the story of one who is very much like them, who dies for that. And even now, around the world, there are people who are dying because they believe what we believe. Dying because they have placed their hope. We, as a church, come alongside of missionaries who are putting themselves at risk right now. As our church considers what it means for us to align with the king and kingdom of Jesus, I want us to know that we're no different when we look at the idea of this kingdom here. When we look at the idea of what this text teaches us, if we look at the idea of what it means for us to be people who follow after Jesus, just know the cost of that is great. It's going to be. The cost of following Jesus is great. And societally, we're going to look and we're going to see that that's even more so. But the cost of not following Jesus, it's even more than that. And all of us have these little kingdoms that are building up in our hearts. And I'm no different than you. I've got a little Lego kingdom in my heart right now. But to see His kingdom come, we've got to be battling those things regularly. So what are ways that we can practically, as a church family, because look, we, many of us, myself included, have grown up in a world where it's just me and Jesus, which is just, it's just not true. For those of us who are in a relationship with Jesus, that's a vertical relationship that causes horizontal relationships to take place. And as we read through the New Testament, I try to keep in front of us. Those are letters written collectively to people. We are a collective of people, a unique collection of people who are the what's called the church, the, the macro church. Every believer across 
space and time united by the death and resurrection of Jesus in these little spaces like us and other gospel good news believing churches across our community and our world united by the death and resurrection of Jesus this is how we manifest here at this place so if, if you're here and you are because you're listening to me in person and not somewhere else, there's some things that I want you to prayerfully consider. Just as a body of believers, as we consider counting the cost for the sake of Jesus, if you're a member, if you belong to this family of faith, one is we regularly have new people here. Every single Sunday I've got new... One Sunday, I, seven new people ran out before I saw anybody that I even knew. Because new introverts leave faster than old introverts. <laughs> Barner Research tells us that one-third, 35% of millennials, which is, we, we get a lot of those, millennials, say that church is not relevant to them. Like this story is not relevant to them. So what if we are engaging and interacting with people and we're saying... There is something relevant to this because you're seeing it, you're experiencing it when you interact with me. I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. My kingdom is going to die for his kingdom to move forward. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Members, regular attenders, common law members, you know who you are. Introduce yourself to someone in this room at some point that you've just never met. But Chad, I'm an introvert. Cool. Now introduce yourself to someone you've never met. What Go to lunch. If you go to lunch with them, you don't even have to talk as much because food's in your face. <laughs> ask them their story. Just ask them. The weirdest thing about people is if you ask them about themselves, they're more likely to talk than about anything else. Number two. Write down two to three sentences about when you started trusting Jesus and just have that with you. You can put that in your phone. Get a tattoo on your forearm. Those are cool now, evidently. Two to three sentences about when you started trusting Jesus. Three. I want to say this. I want to say this to you, members, our people. Just hear me. Our elders have been, for the last two years, we've been praying together as to what it means for us to consider paying off this facility. Before I got here, our, le our leadership wrestled with getting this space. And God, he didn't give this to us because we still got payments, but it was put right there for us. And if you were around for that, you would shake your head and affirm that right now just so I can know I'm not making stuff up. Okay, cool. Thank you for your head shakes. I appreciate it. I see you in the back. Now, some of us are thinking, hey, you know, this is why I don't go to church. Preachers, they always talk about money. I rarely talk about money. But if you're a guest, I want you to hear me say this clearly. I don't need your money. If you've joined recently, sorry. <laughs> if you're a guest, I don't need your money. As a matter of fact, I'll Venmo you $10 right now. Jared will Venmo you 20 so go to him first. <laughs> we don't church fam. So that's for guests. Debt-free today. You're debt-free. Don't worry about this. But for our church people... We don't need your money either. We don't need your money. We've been given a mission. That we would make disciples to the end of the earth. 
And if we're going to do that, the, the best way as we process this, as we wrestle with it, is for us to leverage our resources for kingdom advancement. So there's lots of stuff that run through your mind. Like I know a lot of you are engineers and you want me to have a pie chart. I don't have a pie chart today. There are companies that I talk to. We chose not to work with those companies because we don't owe an crazy amount on this place. We owe roughly $325,000 on this building. That's less than a tank of gas right now. <laughs> the numerous things that we are able to do as we go forward as a church, if we eliminate this debt, are incredible. So I don't know when we're going to do it. I, I, I don't know. I, I can come up with a slogan right now. Debt free in 23. Debt no more in 24. Free to thrive in 25. Whatever you want. I'm not ordering green neon letters. I want you to prayerfully consider what kingdom advancement looks like for us as a faith family. What sacrifices look like. And I want us to get rid of this debt, not so we can say we own a building, because that's dumb, but so that we can say what we were using for that, we can now use for things that are far more. We can give more to international missions, more to local church planning. I sat in Seattle with Jared last week and heard from church planners. They were basically planning churches on Mars there. What would it look like for us to leverage everything we have by eliminating this for the kingdom of Jesus to go fo- to flourish so we can come alongside of our local ministries in a more extravagant way so we can be generous with our stuff? So let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. You're, look, I, I, I hear regularly, engineers hate debt. Let's hate it together. <laughs> Let's advance the kingdom. But for, our, for his kingdom to come, our little ones have to crumble. So let's go. Let's go. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a song. And if you need me, then I'm in the back corner. If you want to talk to me about that $10 Venmo, come on. Whatever we need to do. Father, we trust you this morning. And Lord, I thank you for these people. And Lord, I thank you for the relationship with Jesus that are present here. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be vocal about that. To announce Jesus. To announce the hope of Jesus. His death, his resurrection. My sin dead. And me alive because of him. Lord, I pray that we will look at our resources and we will say... that we will look at our resources and say that they were given to us by you, so let's leverage them for you. So Lord, let us be a people who impact our community and our world because we believe that you're better, Jesus. And we believe that your kingdom is more important and more 
influential and more beneficial to those who are outside of it. So Lord, let us declare that triumphantly. Let us announce that emphatically. Let us look at our stuff and give extravagantly. Because you did that, Jesus. We trust you, Lord. I pray that you'll make much of yourself through us. And Lord, let anything inside of us that would try to save face or build our own kingdom or any of the little things that we see in this text. Let us push that to the side and and hold you up front. We ask it in Jesus' name. If you need me, I'm in the back, my right-hand corner of the room.